everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Rob Murgatroyd Show. Each week, I have conversations with some of the most fascinating people on the planet that can help you live a life of fulfillment. Speaking of fulfillment, if you want to hire me as your coach, head over to robshowcoach.com, fill out an application, and we'll jump on a call to see if we are a good fit to help you create and design your dream life and business. That's robshowcoach.com. Before we get into today's episode, our next Work Hard, Play Hard Mastermind event will be in Dubai and Abu Dhabi for the F1 race on November 16th to the 19th. So look, these trips are designed to get you out of your day-to-day, around some amazing entrepreneurs and provide bucket list experiences that will have you coming home re-energized to grow your business and bring your life to a whole new level. Head over to workhardplayhardexperience.com and fill out an application. All right, let's jump into today's show. If you wanna work with world-class people, you have to have world-class skills. And so you need to go be, you need to be able to do something at an unbelievably high level that most likely other people can't do. So stress is stress. Um, you have a thing that we'll call scientifically allostaric load, which is basically um, all things that go into stress and what's that total load look like. The crazy awesome part is physiology doesn't really know or care. It's because the idea alone that certain food items are inherently bad for all of human race is faulty. It's just clearly, it's never been true. It's never been close to true. Andy, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, man. Good to be here. I am super excited to have you here because I'm aging. I don't like it. It's it's happening faster than I want. I'm trying to navigate my health. I'm trying to move my body. Uh, when I wake up, try and touch my toes. I can't do it the way I used to. So I need help. And I think a lot of people listening are going to need some help too. So thanks for agreeing to be on the show. Yeah, man, my pleasure. So I think a, awesome. good, a good place for us to start would be your college uh, football career. Uh, you got a scholarship to uh, Linfields in Oregon. And you played division three, and then you had a bad injury. You blew out your right knee. Do you think that that experience is what perhaps informs the kind of work that you do today? That's a really good question. I appreciate you doing that background. You had to, I don't know how you did that. You had to dive deep for that one. <laughs> um, no, I don't think so. I, I was headed down this field way before that. Uh, I mean, the first big knee injury happened uh, as a freshman in college and, um, you know, division three and number of years ago, it just, it was, uh, poorly handled. So I continued to play, but it was never, never the same. And still this day is not. Good. So I, I was probably headed down that path though, long before that. In fact, I was, I was doing a lot of those things, um, or interested in this field prior to getting to college. So, okay. um, yeah, in, in fact, in general, like it probably did the worst because the injury prevention side of things was never my interest. It was always the maximal performance side. So it didn't drive me into like physical therapy or rehab or wanting to prevent injuries. This is more of like, I still just want to get faster. And got it. Like got it. Um, okay. So then you went back to school and you got your master's and you got your master's in human movement sciences. 
What exactly is human movement sciences? It's the same thing as what I really got my undergraduate degree in. It's every program just tries to come tries to come up with fancier, cooler names. Um, it's kinesiology. It's exercise science. It's exercise physiology and biomechanics. It, it, it's all of these sort of things. So it's just a it's a colloquial term for a general degree in. Um, you know, we had some sports psychology stuff in there. We had some biomechanics. We had exercise physiology, and you wrap that all around. And some people call that exercise science. Some people call it human movement sciences. It's, it's really the same thing. It's interesting. I had a sports psychologist on last week. Do you know Michael Gervais? Sure, of course. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Go Seahawks. Absolutely. Yeah. Go Seahawks. There you go. He was a really fascinating interview. Um, yeah, okay. He, he's tremendous. He's really, really he, great. He comes from the same lineage, actually, kind of as well. But uh, our program at Cal State Fullerton, our sports psychology program, is world renowned. Um, he didn't come through our stuff, but he came through people that did. So um, we have some indirect ties there. Um, yeah. So he's great. <clears throat> and so then. You, but that wasn't enough. You you went on and you got a PhD in human bioenergetics. Why go on to get that? And what is human bioenergetics? To go backwards, human bioenergetics is this fancy way of saying human metabolism, muscle physiology, uh, all, all these things wrapped um, into one. Now, why I did it was, look, I had finished my master's degree and like I said, it was kind of more of the same. So I, I had things at a high, more in depth, but not really. Like you just kind of learn more about biomechanics, learn more about it. Okay, that's great. Um, I had actually in between those times, I had spent time in Arizona training professional athletes. So I was at a facility called Athletes Performance back then, um, which was the first of its kind. And we had 300 professional athletes in our doors. So I was working with Oh, probably 15 or more first round NFL draft picks, major league baseball, hall of famers, minor leaguers, just whole nine yards. So I had actually done some practical coaching and then I went back, um, you know, got my master's. I actually went there because I had some time to kill. I was, the plan was always to go to the master's point is when I finished that, I was still like, okay, I feel like I have a pretty good grasp for this practical side. I was an athlete myself. I designed all of our training programs in college. I had another friend, Doug Larson, who was doing the same. We were going to National Strength and Conditioning Association conferences. Like we were really involved in the practical side. But I thought everyone is. And everyone wants to work with professional athletes. And what's going to make me different? I didn't have a good answer, right? I'm not, I don't squat 900 pounds. I'm not six foot three, 220 pounds. Like I don't look like that. I don't have anything that's going to be like, that's the guy. We're going to bring this guy on. I also, with my experience with the professional athletes, knew I didn't want to be a full-time coach. That was totally out of the cards for me. Um, so I thought, I, I still like learning. I'm really interested, and I know what to do as a coach, but I don't really understand from a physiological perspective why it's working. There's some high-level stuff you learn going on, but like I couldn't really understand why muscle grows. Why is it when a muscle contracts 25 times? this way, but it contracts 25 times that way, you get these totally different muscular and performance adaptations that differ. How the hell is that possible? And so I thought, I don't know exactly what I want to do. Um, I know I like learning about these things. I've been poor my whole life. So staying poor is not a problem. Like I can do four more years of poor. Like I've already, I don't know anything different anyways, who cares? And um, at the same time, I can then put some numbers or some letters behind my name. I don't know what I'm going to do with them, but it's going to give me an advantage. I guarantee you I'll have an advantage. I'll get opportunities that I wouldn't have without being a doctor. So I can tell you just as, a, as the most honest way possible, those were the things that led into that decision. 
I didn't have a job waiting for me that I loved. I didn't have anyone. Well, instead of just getting a job and seeing what happens, like I can progress very well and set myself up. I was 23 at the time, I think. So I'm like, I, I'm not going to hurt me finishing at 26 years old with the PhD. I wasn't 38 or whatever. So that was a lot of stuff that drove me down that field and uh, it worked out perfectly. Got it. So you knew that the the credibility would be there for you and there'd be potentially more opportunities if you had it versus versus not having. It makes sense to me. Um, yeah, right, it's so- credibility and it's actual, it's actual skill. So that's another thing that's very important because a lot of people are actually making mistakes now going into PhD programs because they want to be called the doctor and they want this stuff. Yeah. But you got to remember, I get asked all the time, how do I get, how do I work with professional athletes? How do I get with these major companies? How do I get these opportunities? And my answer is always, they think it's getting degrees. They think it's having credentials. My answer is always, that might get you in the door, but you're going to get fired really quickly if you aren't actually really good at something. You have to, if you want to work with world-class people, you have to have world-class skill. And so you need to go be, you need to be able to do something at an unbelievably high level that most likely other people can't do. Getting the PhD is going to get them to look at your resume and they might even get you hired or whatever degree, but you're going to get fired and never retained if it's after they've been through like, this guy doesn't know what he's doing or he's, he's okay, but he's the same as this other person over here. So you need to have a unique skill where someone can go, oh, wow. Like no one else could do that. That's really impressive. So don't forget the part of actually having skill. Right. Yeah. The doctor's just a window dressing. It gets you in the door. hundred percent. hundred percent. Hey, it's Rob. I want to jump in and take a quick second to say you got to get a coach. It just makes a difference. A coach can offer you perspective and accelerate your goals so much faster. If you want to work with me, head over to robshowcoach.com, fill out an application, and we'll jump on a call. All right, let's get back to the show. What is your personal unfair advantage? In other words, what are you really, really good at that that most people in your world just aren't. I have, I have two things that I answer this with. Number one is I can just work really hard. <laughs> I can, I can flat out say that I grew up in the culture I grew up in and I'm very fortunate. My parents, first and foremost, my grandparents, my siblings, and everybody I basically grew up with my community. I had such a huge advantage because my community um, it's a small logging community and kind of like you got some small time farmers and things like this, right? Um, most people work and they put up gutters. They work in road construction like I did, like my father did. You're, um, you know, we don't, we don't have like a, there's no restaurants. There's no like big, so you're working these types of jobs. So because of that, sports was a big deal in our community. And even within that, though, the people that didn't play sports, one thing that was central to basically everybody I grew up with was, you know, losing is okay. Like, it's, it's fine. Like, these big city people, they're probably better. They got more resources. So losing was fine. It was just completely unacceptable ever to lose because they were, someone else worked harder. It was always like, they have the advantages. If you want to compete, you better work three times as hard as them. And let's go show those people that have all this stuff they're not as tough as us country folks. They're not, they won't work as hard. We'll get up at 5 a.m. We'll take care of the horses. We'll go clean our stalls. Then we'll ride our bikes to the weight room. We'll lift before school. And but that, that's just everybody I grew up with, whether it's people in the high school, whether it's people that are like, hey, like my house burned down. Fine. Okay, great. Th- like the default strategy was 
all right, I'm going to go out there and build after work. I'm going to start building my house again. Like that's just, I don't know anything different. So I had a huge, huge advantage growing up like that. My parents doing it, me doing it, my siblings doing it. I had, I was being told that, but then I was also, those were just the examples I saw. Um, Everyone I knew did that. So when I got to college, I was so far behind academically. It was like, it was pretty ridiculous, right? Because you can imagine the, the, the sort of poor schooling I had. And I just remember, you know, getting home from class or whatever and going to study and, and all the other kids just doing 30 minutes or whatever. And just me being like, I don't feel prepared for tomorrow's quiz or whatever. And they're just like, ah, it's good. And, and I just remember thinking like, oh my God, like how could you ever stop before you knew everything was perfect? I, I couldn't understand how they would stop watching film unless they knew all everything just really carefully. If you couldn't walk back and do the entire thing off the top of your head, like I, I was like, ah, exactly. Like, how could you possibly do that? You're not as prepared as possible. It took me a long, I actually didn't get along with anybody in college. None of my teammates for like large part of these reasons. I, I couldn't understand why they would be okay. Not being prepared. I just didn't get it. it took me a long time to figure that out. Like, Oh, some people are okay with that. I was couldn't get that. So number one, like that's just, cont- again, as I t- said too, like I went on as a master's student and as a PhD student, I was always felt like I was playing with the free deck because I'm like, I know what I can go back to. No, I never knew anybody in my entire life. I didn't, first of all, I didn't know what a PhD was as a kid, as an undergraduate student, I graduated from college. I still couldn't have told you the, told you the difference between a master's and PhD. I really didn't have any idea. I didn't know anybody that did anything like that. I didn't, we, science is not a part of where I come from and advanced degrees, no clue, right? So I was totally lost. And I just remember like, I don't know a lot of this stuff, but I can, I, I promise you, I can outwork all these kids. And I did my, all of my career, all my friends, I always had to study more as an undergrad. I had to study more as a master's student. I had to work longer hours as a doctoral student because the other people just had more horsepower upstairs than I did, right? They're just, their IQs were higher. Um, it's not necessarily the training. They're just for smarter people. And I'm like, okay, but I can outwork you. I promise you. The second thing I have a, a pretty innate talent for is storytelling. And I think those go hand in hand because I'm not generally what I consider to be um, as highly smart as some people think I am. I had to be able to be like, this is not making sense to me. How am I going to memorize this entire biochemical pathway? How am I going to remember um, all these steps, this chemical procedure I need to do? And so I had to be able to create stories in my head of basically how it's working, why it's working. And then once I remembered the story, I could be like, oh, yeah, OK, because I couldn't just look at it, read it and be like, no, I remember all that. I had to figure out like that the whole system had to make sense top to bottom for me to be able to put the whole thing down as, as a locked in memory. When so you because say, of that, going through you, school. Sorry, when you say storytelling, like I'm trying to visualize doing that in your world's. How do you do that when it comes to, you know, like, I don't know, uh, organic chemistry or something? I find it actually, it's the easiest, right? So if you step back and think about things like you're trying to understand a basic metabolism principle, um, like here's an example of one story I came up with. Um, when you go through school, you learn kind of the three main ways to create energy. There's a way that you create from phosphocreatine, one that comes from carbohydrates and one that comes from fat. And it's very convoluted. It's extremely detailed. And I just started thinking one day, I'm like, okay, is there an analogy you can come up with? Or is there some other way to visualize this? Because I have to be able to see this, this story. And it became very clear to me that, okay, here's what basically happens. If you want to light and make a fire, 
first of all, you have some things you can do to make fire. You could put metal down there and you could try to make a fire out of metal. That's not going to go very well because metal is basically structure. Metal is not meant to be fuel. Well, it turns out in this analogy, that's protein. Protein is not a good fuel source. You can technically burn metal. It just takes a shit ton of energy and it doesn't get much back. What you're willing to want to burn are organic compounds, typically things like wood and paper. Why? Well, the chemical structure, if you look at the, uh, the atoms involved in metal, they're not made with a ton of carbon. Fat and carbohydrates, that's what they're called that way, the carbon that are been hydrated. That's what a carbohydrate means. So it's one carbon, one water. Either case, so fat and carbohydrates are just big chains of carbon. And then when I started thinking, I'm like, wait a minute, what is wood? Well, wood is actually, or what is paper? Paper is just a sliced down piece of wood. We make, you know, everyone knows we make paper out of wood, right? I'm like, well, okay, how do I get that on fire? And then I started thinking, here's what's actually happening. Paper lights really quickly. So if you're going to make a fire, because being from the country, I'm like, I know if I have two choices, which one do I start a fire with? I'm starting with paper. It lights really quickly, but it burns out in a minute or something, whatever, like some, some small time. Wood is much better because it'll burn for forever. So if you're making a fire, you're going to light paper, put the wood on top of that, use the quick burning fire to make sure the paper to get the fire going quickly, but use that then to, it's going to take longer, but get the more sustained energy source in terms from the wood. Well, they're both big chains of carbon. So all you're doing is saying, "Uh aha, when you burn carbohydrates for fuel, it's like paper. Starts very quickly, but it burns out fast because the amount of supply is really small. It's the same chemical thing. It's big chains of carbon. Fat takes a long time to get started. It's a slower way to get energy, but it will give you more. You could light a log on fire and it might burn all night. You light a piece of paper on, you got minutes at most. And so... And when you go back one step further, you're like, well, wait a minute, what's the faster way from there? What's even faster than paper? And you can go to a match and that's phosphocreatine. So a match lights instantaneously, but you've got seconds, two, three, four, five seconds. That whole little piece of wood right on the bottom of the match burns out completely in seconds. It's still wood though, right? It's the same exact chemical thing. It's got some other stuff on it, but it's really at its core, a chain of carbon. And it's a little sliver of wood. And then it's a bigger slice of wood. And then it's a big log wood. That is metabolism all wrapped up in one story. And I had to create that entire thing to understand, oh, I totally get it now. This is why metal sucks as a fuel. This is why protein sucks as a fuel. Your primary fuel, the protein's fantastic for structure. So if I want to build my house, I'm going to use metal as framing and the parts that I can't have go away ever. And then I'm going to use wood and various forms of wood as fuel sources to make my fire, right? So it's a match, it's a small piece of it, it's a piece of paper or newspaper, or it's a full log. And once I had that story created, then I understood the thing much better. And then of course, when I started teaching people, the students were just like, this is so easy now. Like, why has no one ever done this? This like, is really this fascinating. Is- <laughs> what you're, what you're, you know, you, you're, you're certainly a good storyteller, but you're really a story creator. Cause that's not easy to do. Like what you, to, in order to tell the story that you just told, you have to have a shit ton of knowledge to be able to, to do that. If you can just do that, if I can fly you down to Italy to do it for me to learn Italian, that would be really, really great. You know, uh, I learned Italian as a doctor student. How'd you do it? Um, Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone. It worked. And video huh? games. Rosetta Stone and video games. Italian video games? No. 
So I would play Major League Baseball, yeah, uh, the video game, which is kind of like a long, slow game. And yeah. I had Rosetta Stone going on my computer, right? And I would just like do the things, and it says, you know, repeat. And you'd repeat the, the phrase or whatever. And I'm playing because it was too boring for me to sit there and like, yeah, is, no. And, it, and the, if you go fast, it's too much information too quickly. So to slow myself down, but to not feel like bored or like I was studying, I did that. And then I would play the video game and basically commentate the game in Italian. Fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating. And I forgot like 95% of it, by the way, because yeah, I that's... did it like, you know, one time. I wouldn't say learned Italian, but like I got somewhat, like when, I, when I've gone to Italy a couple of times, like you can at least order cafe and you, you got, know, you got something you can use. Yeah. All right. I want to ask some, I'm going to move you out of this area and we're going to move into an area that I think a lot of people have some basic questions about. So some of this may seem really, really basic to you, but um, let's give it a shot. Bands or weights, which one do you recommend for people that want to train? You know, the, the, most guys who are training, they're going to the gym a couple days a week. Should they be throwing weights around their whole life or should they start using bands or should they do both? Both. Okay, no question. Why? why? You, in fact, I would recommend using bands. I would use dumbbells. I would use barbells. I'd use weight machines. Uh, for that person you just described, I would use it all. Um, they all have about the same safety profile. One's not easier on the joints. One's not harder on the joints. That's that's totally false. Okay. Um, they offer a slightly different stimuli, which means you get a slightly different, more well-rounded adaptation. And for someone who's just interested in well wellness and longevity, you want to get adaptations and be strong, be healthy, all these things. So training the same way every time is only going to give you a limited adaptation. So for that perspective alone, to do it, the upside of things like machines. I know you're an asset, but I'm throwing that in there. Yeah, that's good. Is the learning curve is very sharp, right? It takes two or three, actually probably repetitions to figure out how that machine slides and glides. And, and then you're, you're right there. Yep. You're proficient where you could work hard and feel safe. And the downside is they tend to utilize um, less muscles at once. So they're less efficient. So you have to do more exercises. You have to be in the gym longer to get the same amount of things trained. Um, the upside of, of course, things like bands or kettlebells, low, short, much shorter learning curve. And it's going to take you a long time to start getting kind of proficient relative to the machine. Still not very long. Um, the downside of bands and stuff, it's very hard to progress. And progressive overload is critically important for the person you described. And is, in fact, I just had this conversation last night with my graduate class. The single biggest mistake folks like that make is they don't progressively overload. And it's very difficult with sandbags and bands and water implements to progress. And so that's my major criticism is you can't load bands very heavy and you can't progress. It's very challenging to do that. It's very easy to progress on a machine. I did 10 pounds on a machine last week. This time I did, I put it one stack lower. I did 15. I did 20. Like it's really, really simple to do that. Um, bands are, have a huge advantage though, in many other areas, they're not as stable. And so they, they take more focus and overall coordination and concentration. You can do really unique and interesting movement patterns that you cannot do in a machine. Um, 
again, they're, they're very easy uh, to learn in terms of a very basic movement pattern. Um, and because they're not loaded, you're not going to get hurt, but you're not going to make a ton of progress either with them. So it's really important to do a combination of these things. That's a, that's a beautiful answer. Um, okay, let's uh, switch gears a little bit and let's talk about mobility. Um, have you ever heard of the acronym CARS, C-A-R-S? Sure, sure. Okay, so I didn't know anything about it. Um, and uh, I, I get most of my news from TikTok. And uh, I saw a guy on TikTok who was uh, talking about, you know, these cars sort of um, mobility exercises and uh, I hired the guy and um, I've been doing them every day. And we went through a whole series of uh, training together. And I am noticing that my mobility has radically improved in a very short period of time. Like, like incredible. I am doing some really weird shit um, with this stuff. And I was wondering what your thoughts are in incorporating mobility training for the average guy, just, you know, that wants to, you know, like Peter, Peter Atia talks about, you know, uh, being in the hundred year old Olympics, right? Your ability to just like pick up your luggage and put it in the overhead compartment on an airplane. So what's your thoughts on doing those kinds of mobility exercises? I would say the experience you're having is extremely common okay. for people who choose to do that stuff. In other okay. words, yeah, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of fortunate. I have one of the best people in the world in that stuff, specifically right here in Long Beach. Okay. Hunter's fantastic. Um, he's actually taken on one of my friends, Christina Gonzalez, as a... A mentee and, yep. and she's gone over it. I use this, I use things like that with basically every athlete I work with on some level. Athletes can be a little bit different. Um, because you don't necessarily want to be hypermobile, yeah, for in certain sure. Places for those, but for the person you're describing, overwhelmingly, most of those folks need more mobility, and that is a fantastic way to execute it. The other best way by far is full range of motion strength training, and that's basically what cars are by the way, right? It's controlled articular rotation. You're putting some joint through a full range of motion and then you're contracting very hard in that range of motion. That's what doing a full range of motion strength training session does. That's um, what it is. Sort of it's... chuckle when cars came about because we're like, this is just full range of motion strength training. But if it's lower area barrier to entry, it will work. It yeah. will work very quickly. And you will see um like for you you folks listening Right, but that's not hyperbole. What you, the, your situation, what you described is very, very common response to that type of training. People like see it's wild improvements very quickly. It's, it's remarkable. And what I notice yeah. is even doing the hip stuff, I notice like I'm just walking differently. I could feel oh, yeah. my, like, you don't realize how slow this stuff creeps. I'm 50, uh, 55 now, at 56. And you don't realize how, slow this stuff creeps up on you in life. Yeah. Um, and so now, you know, to your point, he, now I understand why he just did this. He had me order ankle weights. And so now I'm doing those exercises with ankle weights and it's like, I'm starting all over again. So great. I'm glad we're, we're, uh, that this is, that this is a positive thing. 
Okay, I wanna jump in for 15 seconds and say, if you're an entrepreneur grinding away and not taking time to experience extraordinary things around the world with other entrepreneurs, you may wanna join us on our next Work Hard, Play Hard Mastermind to Dubai on November 19th. Head over to workhardplayhardexperience.com and fill out an application. Let's move into intermittent fasting. It's all the rage, right? Everybody's intermittent fasting today. My, my mother's intermittent fasting. It's, it's crazy. Um, for, again, and we're going to stick with the same guy, for the average guy, girl, who's saying, okay, like, I, I want to have a life. Like, I, I live here in Italy, right? And food, like, I've had more conversations about olive oil than, like, it's, un- <laughs> like, all I fucking talk about is, like, yeah. gelato, olive oil, and it's crazy. In America, all I talked about is what do you do for a living, you know, and it was work, work, work. Here, it's food, food, food. And this is really a two-part question. Part one is how the hell are the Italians so thin? Don't think Tony Soprano, American-Italian think Italian, Italian, like they're all so thin, they wake up um, and they're eating, they call it a Cornetto, but it's a croissant. And they're ending their day with pasta and wine. Like they are carb loading nonstop. How the hell are they as thin as they are? And then we'll get into intermittent fasting. Yeah, well, I think if you needed evidence that individual food groups are inherently bad for the human race. I think you've just smashed that. It's very clear. You could go to Asia, so the same thing, but just change out pasta for rice. Why no is that? Right? Why is that? It's because it's because the idea alone that certain food items are inherently bad for all of human race is faulty. It's just clearly it's never been true. It's never been close to true. The, the idea that carbohydrates are bad for you or unhealthy for you is not true, and it's never been true. I mean, there's extensive evidence, small amount that you just pointed out, but you could go in a hundred different directions showing that that's quite clearly false. This is is not true. Um, Now we made the same mistake with fat, trying to demonize that here in America for decades. And that was false as well. Um, You can turn the table and some folks say the same thing about protein. And that's also false. I don't know how many more times we have to run the story for people to fucking realize that's not going to be true ever. It's just never going to be a thing that that's you're focusing on the wrong target. It's not individual food items. It's not wheat. It's not dairy. It's not meat. It's not vegetables. It's not fruit. None of these things are bad for you on the population level. It's never going to be true. So the second part about this is you have to think more specifically about what are those nodes that are actually driving poor health. It's not the food items. It is the thing like it's not the combinations of foods it's not the it's none of that crap that are magical it is things like first and foremost what is your overall calorie load that matters a ton if you are in a hypercaloric state things that are only marginally quote unquote bad for you tend to become really bad really quickly mm. if you are in a hypocaloric state you can get away with almost anything and your body's okay so I'm not one of those like calories are all the only thing that matters or even close to that. I'm not, all you have to do is count your calories to be healthy. I'm nowhere near that stratosphere of belief. But having said that, it is very clear in the science, in all realms of the science, overall body composition matters a lot. So your caloric state is a huge factor. Um, your total protein intake is a huge factor. Your lifestyle and total stress load is a huge factor. In fact, if you look um, 
Kevin Hall published a really nice paper, um, maybe a month ago or less. And it was a really nice multifactorial overview of what causes things like obesity. And it is not just carbohydrate intake, though, of course, insulin and blood sugar has, have some relevance. It is not fat intake, though, of course, cholesterol has some relevance. It is not just where you're from. It is not just your ethnicity. It's not just your socioeconomic status. It is not just the hyperpalatability. It is all of these things. They all play a very critical role. So in, in the Italian example, they clearly have, in general, um, the ability to handle carbohydrates well. They clearly have a lifestyle that matches that. They clearly have overall stress load that match that. They clearly have a total food intake and a total calorie intake that line up. And so that in general, um, they tend to have higher quality food items. They, they eat a croissant and drink like as breakfast for sure. Like, which is one of the things that drives American nuts, right? When you go to Italy, like you go to any breakfast shop and it's like pastries. Like, where's the breakfast? Like it's pastries and coffee, bro. Like that's it's what you get. One, it's one, it's not 90%. It's a hundred percent. It's yeah. unbelievable. They line up every single morning at the, we call it the bar. They call it the bar um, at the, at the coffee bar, literally yeah, with an espresso yeah. or Cornetto. And they're just talking about food, like just, and yep. then, and then they do it again in two hours. And then they yep. walk, I guess they're walking, I guess the, well, again, their overall intake is, it's not, they're not eating a croissant and then they're not putting, um, 400 calories of cream and sugar in their cafe. They're not also then eating a Snickers bar, but like they're having a hundred calorie croissant. They're having a, a tiny shot of espresso. They're moving about and they're going on their day a couple, like they're not actually eating that many calories. Then they have a big calorie load at night, which puts them to sleep really well. They have a, better sleep. They, they tend to sleep in the stress of the work days are shorter in Italy. They take big, way bigger breaks and, you know, generally throughout the work. Why day, does, not... okay. So two, two things, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I just want to jump in here. So one thing I noticed to your point, I went back, uh, I was in Boston, um, two weeks ago and I had been here. I just moved here. I've been here for, I was here for eight consecutive months. And then I went, we went home for Easter and what the first thing that I could not believe when we went to a coffee shop was, I kid you not, the croissant was four yeah. times the size right. of what we have here. So to your point, calorically, it was, it has to be at least four times what it was. Okay. So that was the first thing. Second thing is you've mentioned a couple of times, lifestyle related things like stress and long breaks. Why does that, or how does that factor into overall losing weight? Yeah, so stress is stress. Um, you have a thing that we'll call scientifically allosteric load, which is basically um, all things that go into stress and what's that total load look like. The, the crazy, awesome part is physiology doesn't really know or care. So whether you're really upset emotionally whether you did a, a physically difficult task, that's going to cause the exact same cascade of stress. It doesn't really matter the cause. So when you're in a hyper-stressed state, we see things like depression of thyroid, right? We see things like depression of wanting to move in physical activity. You'll see a decrease in motivation, but you'll also see a, a, a decrease in willpower, if you will. In other words, people make worse food choices when they're fatigued. That is very clear. Um, when you are sleep deprived, 
you're going to grab more carbohydrate-based food. And that makes total sense, right? So in evolutionary nature, if you're low energy status, you're going to eat a higher energy, quicker fuel source, right? So you're going to make worse food choices. You're going to be more susceptible to hyperpalatable foods, which are generally going to be both higher processed and higher calories, which are both a problem. Um, You're going to make, again, less uh, physical activity choices because you're tired. Right, because you are fatigued now from your emotional stress. This is a real thing, right? Cortisol regulation is just real. Um, adrenal fatigue is not real at all, but cortisol dysregulation is. So all those things combine to put you in this state of, okay, oh, and then by the way, since cortisol is just one very easy example, it's much more complicated than that, but if cortisol is high, then you have a hard time going to sleep, staying asleep and getting higher quality sleep. So then you wake up again, more fatigued and we end up in this death cycle. You're just spinning further and further and further. So it's not the fact that necessarily like cortisol causes you to hold on to belly fat. That's not really what's happening. It's causing this giant cascade of lifestyle choices that tend to lead to lower energy expenditure and higher energy intake. Got it. Got it. Um, Okay. You mentioned sleep there. Do you like wearables like Whoop to track that? Okay. How, How deep you want me to go here or not? Surface. Okay. Um, okay, it's fine. They're going to tell you, uh, roughly how many hours you're sleeping. The sleep stages are not necessarily accurate. Um, we don't use them. I have actually a entire sleep tech that's not publicly available yet that we use. So we go into people's individual houses and we're going to do a handful of things. Number one, it has a psychological screener uh, because of anxiety, depression, et cetera, our real factor of sleep. Number two, um, it's actually eye tracking software that we use. We, we can diagnose acute and chronic sleep deprivation through eye tracking. We're going to scan your brain to figure out a whole bunch of things going on there. Three, we're going to actually take physiological measures. So we're going to ensure um, melatonin status, dopamine status, serotonin. We're going to look at B vitamins and a bunch of other things in your blood, urine, and saliva to ensure that it's not a biochemical issue. Um, number four, we're going to run full environmental scans in your room. So we're going to look at everything from light and sound exposure to um, is there formaldehyde coming out of your mattress? Are there is lead or, or anything else seeping out of your uh, walls that are causing problems? Is the CO2 cloud building up because the ventilation is poor and you're rebreathing your own CO2? And then on top of all that, we're going to run full what's called polysonography. So we have a full sleep, like, like you get a sleep clinic done on your house or measuring actual brain waves or measuring O2 saturation, leg movements and position. So when we really need to diagnose sleep, that's called absolute rest, by the way. Um, so when we really want to diagnose that, we're going to run the absolute rest system on people. Having said that, if we can figure out um, things like Aura and Whoop are going to roughly tell you how you're sleeping. They're not going to tell you why it's happening. So that's the problem is, and the reason why I said that is the answer question, like, do I like them? Well, like kind of, but here's generally what happens. You wear it and you're like, wow, I slept like shit last night. Oh, yep. My Whoop score says I slept like shit. Well, that's great. <laughs> what, what insight? You know if you had a bad night of sleep in general. You know if you had a good night. It's, well, it's sometimes, it rever- sometimes the reverse is true where you think- Yeah, but so when the reverse night. is true, it's because the technology is not very accurate. That's no, what I'm no, saying. no. I was going to say the reverse is true where you, had a, you think you had a good night's sleep and then you look at your whoop and you're like, oh, maybe I'm not so good. No, but that's my point. Oh. That's my point is it's because the whoop score is not accurate. Oh, so you're saying that you're getting a, you're getting a, you're getting, you're getting a false flag, a false flag. Got it. 
Yeah. And then it's like, all of a sudden it's in your head all day. And you're like, I slept like crap. I slept like crap. You're like, well, maybe you didn't. So if you just want to look at the score, I slept this many hours, it's pretty good. But don't look at the sleep. I only got this much percent of deep sleep or this much percent of REM sleep. Don't don't use those sleep stages. Um, now, the Aura did just come out with it. I'm actually wearing right now. I'm running some testing on it. And, and um, theoretically, the sleep stages are more accurate in this new one, but we'll see when the papers come out. Um, but prior to this, they're just really bad. So as I said, like, don't. If you want to go full in the sleep, you can, but don't let these things ruin your life. Okay. Yeah, it's, um, easy. it's certainly easy to do. Because you're like, um, I thought I, I felt great. I thought I had a great night's sleep. I, I thought I was good. good. It must have been that third glass of wine I had. Okay. Uh, <laughs> got never that. the wine. It's never the uh, wine. Is that right? Just kidding. Okay, good. I, I, well, wine's not I, great. There's worse things for your sleep, but um, yeah. wine's okay. I, for me, if I, if, if I keep it under two, I'm all right. If I go over two, it's not good. Um, yeah. Okay. So you're, you're one of these fuckers where I have a thousand questions and I only have a few more minutes with you. So let's, uh, let me, let me ask you this one and then we're going to, we're going to do a wrap up. How long do you think that human beings can live? In other words, if you wanted to live, you said, look, I want, I'm going to go all in. And I am going to live as long as I can live. How long do you think that you can do it either personally, or if you don't want to answer it personally, on average, where do you think we can go with this? Look, I think we have the technology right now to push us another decade or two. I think that's very real. Um, and is that, getting, what does that put you out at like 92 or like, a, or like 120? No, no, I think, yeah, like that second number, I, I think, having a lot of people get to hundred is, is a viable thing. You know, once you factor out accidents and stuff like that, um, in the next few decades, I think we can push that average age and what is it in America? Probably 75. It's in the seventies. Yeah. Yeah. I think you can push the global average up a decade. Okay. I, think, I think that's a, a fair thing. Um, now like we, some people can push to that 110, 120. I think that's, that's possible. Um, hundred years, 200, oh, who knows what that number can get to, you know, by then, but I think it is very realistic simply because what drives that bottom number down um, in terms of the average is all the people that die in their 40s and 50s that are extremely preventable. Can you take somebody who's pretty healthy and really add 10 to 15 years of life? <sighs> Hard. But what you can do is just change the math by making sure these 45-year-olds don't die unnecessarily because calcium screening in the heart is easy. Um, it's getting easier to scan for early onto cancers, things like that. So it's not necessarily that we can extend the lifespan of humans as a species, but we can make the average life longer by cutting out those preventable deaths early. Does that make sense? Make a hundred percent. Okay. Last two questions. Um, first one is if you could put, if you could send out a push notification to everybody's phone, what would it say? Like daily or one time ever? <laughs> uh, one time ever. I would probably maybe default to something in the order of abundance mindset. That might be enough. Google abundance mindset. Google, maybe something like that. Google um, abundance. That's really, really good. Google abundance mindset. Ooh, that's good. Last question. Let's change it up a little bit. What one question do you have for me? Maybe 
You said you're in Sicily, right? No, uh, Florence. Florence, yeah. Florence. I've been to Florence twice. Incredible. Um, over or underrated? The famous Florentinian steak. I can't remember the name of it. That is a it's bistecca is what they call it. There that you is go. Um, that is a really really good question and unfair. And here's why. I Welcome to my world with every question. You ask. <laughs> <laughs> it's unfair because I don't like rare meat and they <gasps> they don't fuck around with it. They put signs up everywhere that says, don't even ask us to cook this. They won't. They mm-hmm. won't. They won't. They won't. They won't allow you to have a cappuccino after 12 o'clock in the afternoon and they will not allow you to ask for the steak to be cooked. So I don't like rare meat, so I don't eat it. And Shame. I'm probably going to get gout because all I eat here is, is, uh, you know, the, uh, the salamis and all that stuff. Um, but I don't, I don't love it. That said, I like the crunchy stuff on the outside. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like I'll eat yes, that. That's amazing. Yeah, I've had it multiple times. <laughs> Yeah. Well, listen, um, there is no doubt in my mind that um, they made a really good choice to make you a tenured and now full professor. Congratulations on that. Um, you. you are really, really, really smart, really, really quick. And um, uh, you are on a lot of radars right now. So keep doing what you're doing. You are certainly aligning yourself with some amazing people. Um, and I just think that you have one hell of a career ahead of you. So thank you for taking the time for being on the show. Um, do you have any final suggestions or an ask for the people that are listening? No, I don't think so. Um, yeah, just be nice people. (laughs) We all get better when we all get better. Not the other way. Dude. Thanks again. Yeah. My pleasure, man. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live. (laughs) 